Ah, oh, it's such a nice day today. The sun is shining, but the temperature is relatively okay. It's not too warm, and there's a bit of a breeze, just the way I like it. And I'm back, back after one week of walking, and 140 or 160 kilometers of walking, and two weeks of vacation in Ireland. And I'm uh, I'm ready for a new start. And so that's why I'm recording this episode of The Walk at the start of the new week. Slowly easing back into, into the rhythm. Maybe you're still on vacation. Maybe you've already had your vacation or you haven't had your vacation yet. Anyway, I hope you're doing fine. And uh, I'm just going to give you an update on uh, these past few weeks that you missed me. And I was actually really glad that I didn't try to you know, pre-produce all sorts of stuff or record while on vacation. This this helped me to make a better break than uh, in previous years. I did do a little bit of vlogging during that first week of walking. That's now three weeks ago already. Um, and if you've seen those those videos on Facebook, um, you've you've kind of gotten a little sample of what the experience was like. I've never done something like that before. <laughs> more than 40,000 people walking these big distances every day. It was a, a great week weather-wise. The weather was just perfect for walking. It was a bit like this, even a bit uh, cooler at the start of the week. But we had no rain, no excruciating heat like the week after that. And um, some sunshine. It was wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, also, a very intense experience because you can imagine 40,000 people walking plus uh, at least five times more people on the sides of the road every village you passed had loud music blaring and people uh, fe- feasting and, and, and offering you all sorts of uh, um, refreshments it was, it was very intense and in a way I was glad it was just four days because then I, I really needed some time off and to you know, get back into the calm peace of vacation but it was it was a great experience, and uh, as you may know, I was walking for charity, for a an Advent charity actually uh, of our bishops. Um, we're helping mothers and children in uh, four countries. Um, I think one African country, three South American countries, and we provide help for um, uh, pregnant mothers and also for mothers with newborn children, medical help. Uh, uh, help a childbirth, help also um, in the accompanying the parents, and of course these are uh, poor people with limited resources, limited knowledge also, and it was a worthy cause, and I was really happy that so many people joined me in that uh, in sponsoring for the cause, and I think that next year, if I walk it again, I'll probably be able to raise much more because I'll have more time to prepare uh, than I had this year. I was very, very happy with the result. And uh, the next uh, thing on my calendar was vacation. And I have to say, when I came back home from that, those four days of walking, I was actually ready for a vacation at home. I just wanted to be at home because you've been away for a week. And the previous weeks, we had been working so hard on um, uh, the uh, first steps of the refurbishing of our offices. And so I just wanted to just be home, have some time to uh, to read, to play video games, to pray, um, to cook, 
but I had to leave almost immediately afterward, after mass on Sunday. I had to go to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and took a short flight to Dublin where I met up with uh, three other priests and we drove um, a rental car to uh, the country of Leitrim to the little town of Fina uh, which is spelled F-E-N-A-G-H but you pronounce it as Fina it's like all these names over there have uh, 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 Gaelic uh, origins of course and that's where we rented uh, a home and this time very different from previous years it was a very big house much bigger than we thought judging from the photos on the website and it was very cozy um, had a, a a fireplace and when we arrived it was already late at night and the owners uh, awaited us and showed us how to light the fire because it was cold it was 16 degrees celsius which is exceptionally exceptionally cold for for you know dutch summer uh, uh, standards but uh, for irish standards it was actually quite normal and it was a massive difference with the rest of europe where that week that we were the first week that we were in ireland there was this heat wave that was baking our uh, europe uh, in an unprecedented way we had temperatures rising all the way up to 41 degrees celsius which is unheard of and scary it's really scary because we're not we're not used to these temperatures we have no um accommodations for for that we don't have um, air conditioning in our houses there are a few stores that have air conditioning but that's about it and so a lot of people have been suffering tremendously because of this heat but we were fine it was kind of chilly that first evening and then the weather gradually started to normalize Uh, we didn't have much rain at all which is also quite rare for ireland and of course, that's caused because of this, the, the geographical location of, of the island. And so you, you have a lot of that Atlantic wind that has cooled off over sea and then is then, you know, cooling off the rest of the, of the country. But for our purposes, it was great weather because it was fantastic weather to sleep, which was something we all needed. Yeah, so I slept very well, no, no heat problems whatsoever. And it was also great weather to walk. And we did walk so much. Of course, I was, I was ready for walking. I, I walked 40 kilometers per day. So 160 kilometers in total. Um, and I, I, felt, I felt extremely fit. It, in that respect, I was very happy to discover that all the training paid off. And I trained much longer distances. I, I trained about 50 kilometer walks. And uh, I noticed uh, what a difference that made because if at the end of, the, of a walking day, 40 kilometers, I still had room to spare. I could still walk another 10 kilometers, probably without much trouble. So next year, I'm going to do the 50-kilometer walk for four days. So that'll, that'll be 200 kilometers. And on vacation, also had not much trouble with all the hikes that we did. Um, of course, that couldn't be said of the rest of the group. Well, Father Harry is also an experienced walker, but uh, Father Michel and Father Henry, not so much. And so they, they had some trouble sometimes keeping up or going up the mountain. Um, but nevertheless, we did 
go on many more hikes and and tours than uh, than before and i was very happy because there's a lot to see in ireland and where we were staying that was kind of in the center it's about two hour drive from west of dublin so it's almost in the center of the country and the environment was was nice it's all hills and meadows and sheep and rocks and trees but that was about it it was just grass trees and sheep and then you walk for 20 kilometers and then still (laughs) grass and sheep and rocks Um, very calming but I wanted to see a little bit more and so we picked our our uh, our tours uh, in interesting uh, locations so we we visited some of those older remains of old monasteries of course uh, uh, Ireland has a very ancient Catholic history with monks settling there already in the 5th century. Of course, you've got uh, St. Patrick and his companions uh, and some traces of him. So we went to one place where there's this old monastery that they kind of they kind of rebuilt the church or the chapel of that monastery. And then you've got a remains surrounding it. And there was also a well uh, a little bit uh, outside of the premises of the, of the abbey. And uh, it had a, a bronze statue of St. Patrick. And according to legend who knows how accurate it is but it was at that well that St. Patrick had baptized the first pagans over there and everywhere we came we saw these these old traces and some of these locations are still uh, stunningly intact most of the time the roofs are gone but I remember that in Sligo for instance there was this abbey and you could walk around in there and just totally imagine the setting uh, in, in its original state, and so n- not much of that is still is still intact. You just have to know how to get there, and uh, and then of course you need some information as well, so that those runes start to speak to you. And that, that was another thing that I appreciated a lot in Ireland. Almost every historical location had uh, either a small exposition or there was an information stand with someone. Uh, who was able to explain to you the, or, and tell the stories of that of that site? And I always like to do that much much more lively than than reading a, a guide or something like that. And in some locations, we even had a a, a a live guide. I remember this one castle that we went to, Parks Castle, and uh, it was uh, on the border of a huge lake. And that castle had been uh, almost completely restored. Um, not so long ago, I think 30, 40 years ago. And uh, the story was fascinating because it covered a lot of the history of Ireland itself. Uh, in an introduction video, uh, they, they told us about even the, the, these megalite sites that we also visited. So this is in the Neolithic period. This is uh, four, 5,000 years ago. Um, when the first farmers started to exchange traditions and and, uh, and rituals with other groups of farmers and that's where we discovered for instance that uh, in one of those locations they d- they dug up the skeletons or the remains the human remains of people buried on those uh, burial places and gene- by genetic research they found out that part of that population came from Turkey, from what is now Turkey and so somehow they, 5,000 years ago, they, they managed to cross the seas, settle there, 
And then there was another group, which was more of that region. And so it's fascinating to see that these, these two completely different, I'm not sure if they were tribes, but different types of population exchanged rituals and started to build these burial sites on top of hills and had all sorts of um, interesting uh, architectural um, symbolism in it. For instance, they would build these, these, these round uh, piles of stone. In the center would be someone important who was buried there. And then it would create this corridor, this opening in, in this circle of stones. And once a year, on the solstice, for instance, or at the beginning of uh, harvest time, the sun would shine directly to the center of that grave. Uh, so already this early intuition of, you know, the sunrise is the symbol of new life that shines upon death. And this is way before, you know, any trace of uh, uh, Judeo-Christianic uh, uh, beliefs. It's, it's, a, it's a sign, for me, it was a sign that that is part of our, of our, of our beings, this intuition that there, there is more, there's, death is not the end, there's always the promise of new life and a new, and a new beginning. And we like to symbolize that in the way that we bury and treat our, our dead. So that was fascinating. And then over time, of course, Ireland changes and you have at one point in history, much more recently, they have, they, there are these chieftains that are like local chefs. Hey, little kitty. Hey. Hi. Oh, this is a beautiful cat. Silver-haired and very affectionate. Hey. Meow. <laughs> But I don't have any treats for you, so... <laughs> anyway, so... Um, the, uh, uh, the, the the castle there was first inhabited by a chieftain. They found remains of what the castle looked like. It was basically a huge tower in which they would live. Because the other chieftains were constantly attacking uh, each other for dominance in the region. And so the first castle was kind of a, the whole site looked a bit like a location from Game of Thrones, or like Castle Black or something like that. And then uh, uh, at one point, of course, the English tried to um, colonize Ireland. And what they would do is they would send these local rulers um, that would often take hold of those castles and rebuild it to establish their stronghold and uh, they would also employ or subjugate the local population. And in order to kind of you know, spread the English culture, they, they looked down on the Irish, considered them to be um, uh, uncivilized, you know, heathens and... Well, perhaps not heathens, but definitely uncivilized, uh, uh, primitive people, which is absolutely not uh, the reality, of course, of Ireland... Because in the earlier days, when the monks started to evangelize Ireland, they also invested heavily in, in the arts. So there, there used to be this small island nearby that castle that was basically a, a music school. <laughs> the monks were funding that and uh, uh, teaching music to the local population. And uh, that is still very, very present in Irish culture. It's the importance of music and rhythm in every local pub you have people playing the the tin whistle and the 
the what you call it the, the violin and uh, these, these little drums that they have I'm walking here by the way in the swamp uh, on this I hope this is still feasible there are a lot of there's a lot of poison ivy here which I don't want to touch but this is usually the time of year that they let it overgrow the path and then uh, towards the end and, and that's important because it's also a dwelling place for a lot of birds and insects and so these little oases of uh, of natural environment in the city are something we cherish but sometimes if you walk here you have to kind of rival the the local <laughs> animal <laughs> habitation or inhabitants so the uh the, the music, uh, the culture, reading, um, the monks did so much for Ireland. And, and so it was very... Um, it was crazy what the, the, um, the English tried to do. They just colonized that entire country, imp- uh, imposed their own culture, their own language. Of course, nobody spoke English. And, uh, and, and so English was meant to replace... Gaelic. You can still see that when you drive through North, North Ireland, Northern Ireland. In Ireland, every town, every road is uh, marked in two languages, in English and in Gaelic. The moment you cross the border, which is not really a border, it's an invisible border, which may also cause a lot of problems in the future when uh, the UK leaves the European Union after the Brexit. What are they going to do? close the border with uh, between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. But anyway, as soon as you're in Northern Ireland, it's only English. The Gaelic is completely gone. Um, and whereas I'm pretty sure that people still speak it, because there's not much cultural difference between the northern part of Ireland, especially not in that kind of uh, this, this uh, uh, frontier region. And yet, uh, they it's still the, the kind of the result of uh, of that cultural imperialism of of the english i think so that one particular castle was uh was inhabited by a lord who was kind of different from the other english um uh regions or uh local i'm not sure what their function was uh but he tried to blend in with the irish culture so he would treat his uh personnel very well and they could tell that from the building itself because they they saw that uh, the personnel even though they lived in very small quarters but they had windows which was unheard of at that time they had a little bit of heating in the winter which was also something you normally wouldn't do for your servants but this particular owner did that and also uh uh, invited people that were afraid of other, um, uh, you know, that lived outside of the premises of the castle. He invited them to come and live inside the walls of the castle so they'd be safe from the other rivaling um, co- colonialists or colonial uh, rulers that were also constantly trying to undermine the the this, the, the owner of this castle because he was way too friendly, according to them, to the to the Irish. So it was such an interesting... And we had this very enthusiastic guide and she was telling us about uh, uh, th- these times as if we were there. We had this kind of almost private tour. That was just amazing. I love 
history when it's told as if you're there. And, and you, you can walk around and see where it all happened. And since they restored a lot of those rooms, uh, you could just totally visualize it. So we had a number of those visits, and then we also went for long hikes. Mostly, most of the time it was climbing mountains. So we climbed, I think, four mountains in total. Uh, some smaller ones. We did do Crow uh, Patrick, which is the, the big pilgrimage uh, mountain, uh, where every year, on the last week of July, tens of thousands of Catholics will climb that mountain to the top. There is a small chapel on top of, of uh, Mount St. Patrick where they celebrate Mass. There is also uh, a place that's called the Bed of St. Patrick because according to tradition, to old stories, St. Patrick actually uh, spent 40 days there f- fasting and praying and uh, the, the, what they call now St. Patrick's Bed is probably the, the place where he slept. And that is now a repository for all sorts of intentions and stones on which people have written their names or names of their loved ones. So a bit similar to uh, the Iron Cross on the road to Santiago. That that mountain, by the way, was the hardest one because it's... Uh, I mean, this is not a piece of cake at all. I, I, I did it once before, 14 years ago, when we were in Ireland. And I remember podcasting the entire way up to the top but at the time that's 14 years ago I probably was a lot fitter or I don't know maybe not maybe I've just forgotten about the the harder parts of that um, of that climb but this time it was really tough and you had to at one point it the road was so steep that you had to hold on to the rocks on the side of the of the path in order to uh, make your way up so it's definitely not for everyone, and there are a lot of loose rocks, so if you go down, it's even more challenging and dangerous, and people actually break legs, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite a risky undertaking. But we were there a couple of days before that big national pilgrimage, which was on Sunday. I wanted to go there, but the, the rest of the group wasn't too keen on returning there just a few days after we climbed a mountain ourselves. So it was a bit of a pity. I would have loved to see that big pilgrimage. Um, we did encounter quite a few pilgrims on our way uh, up and on our way down and, and you gotta love the humor of the, of the Irish because at one point there's this man who grabs me by the arm and is like are you're not one of those uh, legionaries of Christ are you? <laughs> because we, I was wearing my uh, my uh, uh, my priestly clothes and apparently he had, he had had some bad experiences, I don't know, with priests from the legionaries. And then I said, no, just regular parish priests. Oh, good man, good man, good man. <laughs> and then a little bit further. Uh, so this was on Friday, and the big national pilgrimage would be on Sunday. And, and priests and bishops go up the mountain as well to say Mass there. And so we're, we're walking there, suffering, and then there's this family, and a husband tells us... Uh, <laughs> Ooh, fathers, you're mightily early for Sunday morning mass. <laughs> oh, so funny. We've had so many of these friendly encounters. And uh, it, that was one of the great aspects of the, of the journey, is to, just to meet the local people. They're really great. Very, um, how do you say that? Um, it's, it, it, there's no 
no pretense. It's uh, they've got a good sense of humor. It's very easy to uh, start a conversation. Uh, very helpful. Yeah, I loved it. We went to uh, mass on Sunday in the local parish, uh, not far from where we uh, stayed. And the local priest there, Sean, had four churches. This we were in his main church. There were four smaller churches and villages. And he worked there with together with one other priest who was in his 80s. So it's still feasible. But he told us that uh, things are changing incredibly fast in in Ireland. Uh, The amount of seminarians has decreased. From When he was in seminary, he told us that there were 400 seminarians from his diocese alone. Now there's only one national seminary. And this year they only had five new applicants. Five students. And if you you know, know that... Like every little town has a church. Um, it, this is going to be an, a massive challenge in the near future for Ireland. Plus, of course, it's uh, it, it's changing. It's mutating from a, a cultural Catholicism, which is ingrained in everything and everyone, to, let's say, a situation that's more akin to, to the situation in the rest of Europe, where people really... Um, it's not part of their daily lives. It's not part of the culture anymore. So if you want to be a Catholic, you have to choose to be a Catholic. And you have to choose to go to church. And even though the numbers are still very impressive for for our reference uh, in, in the Netherlands, where we have, I think, like 3 or 4% of the Catholics still go to church. Um, over there, at least in my parish, over there it's still... You know, I don't know, 40-50% of the Catholics that go to church. But still, you, you can already notice that things are, are declining very rapidly. And one thing that I noticed, and of course this is just on the basis of that one Mass on Sunday, um, I've got the feeling that they too, just like us, in, in uh, just like we have in, in the Netherlands, they have had uh, trouble kind of bridging the gap between the generations. It's really geared towards old people. The songs that they sing, the whole form of the liturgy. It's not, I don't know, it's, it, it's, it's a bit of a letdown. There's, the singing is mediocre. The way the liturgy is done is mediocre. Um, and I struggle with the same thing, thing in my own parishes where I'm thinking what, what we're doing is, is kind of used up and it needs a breath of fresh air. And the beauty is gone. Um, and it depends, of course, from church to church. Uh, r- right now I'm, I'm celebrating Mass in about, I think, 10 of the 15 churches that we have. And uh, in, some pari- in some parish churches, it's, the liturgy is nice and very uh, prayerful. And uh, there is a certain simplicity, but also beauty and simplicity. But in other locations, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm back in the 70s. And I can't believe how wordy this liturgy is and how mediocre everything and the songs and the music ugh, and no acolytes no there's no the beauty is gone and so there's it's it's I don't know it's like an abandoned house in a certain way let me go to the left here to kind of close the loop back home to the office and and so for for uh, Father Sean um, it I mean I'm I I kind of I pray for the priests over there because I think that the, for them the shock is going to be much bigger because the, the developments are going much faster than uh, in our countries. We've had 
20, 30 years to get used to the idea that the, the Catholic Church will uh, disappear as a dominant factor in our culture and uh, that the majority of our churches are going to close. There's a, this week there's an, uh, an article on uh, Crux Now, which is this uh, platform headed by John Allen, who's this uh, Vatican reporter. Um, and there's, a, there's an article there written by a Dutch uh, journalist about the situation of the church in the Netherlands, and it's a very grim future. Uh, most of the churches will disappear. Uh, a lot of the villages, the church may be there as a building, but it will no longer be, be a place of worship. And I, I experienced that myself <clears throat> during those four days of walking, when in certain villages, the Catholic church was open. In one church, there was even uh, an African priest, a missionary, who was on the pavement greeting the, the passers-by, inviting them in for, to light a candle, to say a prayer. But there were also villages where you had beautiful churches and then I wanted to go in and they told me well it's not a church anymore it's a library or it's a, an apartment building now and it feels so wrong it's like ah oh. <laughs> another place where literally, visually the church and faith is gone and there's only a facsimile of, of old ancient times I'm already glad the building is still there as a kind of an homage to the faith of uh, previous generations so I'm not not at all uh, in favor of, of tearing down churches that are no longer in use, but it is still very sad. But that's, rec- that's looking at it from a, from a perspective of loss, as if we have the right to have this flourishing church where everyone is, you know, somehow Christian, Catholic. But that's actually a false premise. We, 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 ha- we are not uh, owners of the church. We are not owners of the culture. We are servants of of God, and we have a mission in our culture. But the success is not up to us, and it's not uh, we don't own it. And that's kind of what I've been trying to train myself in. It's, it's like every time I feel this regret, this pain, this almost depressed feeling of we're losing everything, we're closing our churches, and it's all going down the drain. I'm trying to always stop myself and think, well... That's not that's not true. I mean, that's God does not ask me to 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 have churches in every village and to make sure that the Catholic culture is still the dominant culture. And it, it, He wants me to follow Him and to do what I can to do what He asks me, not something else. That is that already is a challenge, and then to just hand it over. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about you're gonna, how you're going to dress. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. That's Jesus himself who says that. And I think we have to live that more than ever before. So instead of, of, of moaning or even worse, the aggression that you nowadays see, uh, uh, especially in the American context, if you see how Catholics treat each other and how much the political climate has also infected because it's more than affected, it's an infection, it's a disease has, has made Catholics miserable and treat each other miserably it's a sign of distress, it's a sign of of, of uh, uncertainty and fear and that leads to anger and anger leads to hate Yoda already already says it, but it's so true. It's so true. And it's also 
part of our Christian message. It's like, don't give in to anger. Don't give in to hatred. But stay close to God and trust. Trust each other. Trust the goodness of God. Trust His Holy Spirit. And the moment you're reacting with anger or with resentment or hate, hatred, then you're no longer doing what God wants you to do. And I think that's the most important thing that we need to preach nowadays in this device, div, in this divided culture that we live in, in, but also in a church that is starting to, to have this internal, or, or probably had already for a long time, is, is, is faring this war on the inside. Where it's, that's not what we should be occupied with. And you know what I, what I learned in Ireland is that sometimes you have to do the total opposite of what you humanly want, want to do against the decline. Uh, one of the things that, that I noticed was how, how often these monks would go up mountains and build a little chapel on top of this tall mountain that was very hard to climb and just stayed there and prayed and lived there in simplicity. Like this last day, we went to um, a mountain range or actually a range of cliffs in the northwestern part of Ireland. It was a long drive, like a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Uh, and, um, but we, this is like northwest of Sligo. And the, the, the thing that triggered me was that there was a path, a walking path, that was called the Pilgrim's Path. And uh, I was like, why is it called a Pilgrim's Path? Because it leads to a, a viewpoint. Uh, it leads to a set of cliffs that are much taller than the Cliffs of Mohair. Uh, very beautiful. That was a gorgeous day as well. But while climbing that mountain, I encountered very close to the top this old settlement, which has to date back to the 5th, 6th century, uh, where two monks that were later declared saints lived and built their chapel and the floor plan of the chapel is still there there's a wall surrounding the settlement and there are some bigger rocks that they kind of uh, placed together in a sort of a triangular uh, way so that they could take shelter underneath it like little stone tents and that's where they lived it's the worst place on the planet to start a parish and I like it took me a moment to realize that they were there not to you know set up a successful parish or to be super um, ingrained in society but they were there because they wanted to follow Christ and Christ had said to them seek first the things that's from above and uh, don't worry about the material things seek first the kingdom of God and everything else shall be given to you and i i really believe that that is those are the seeds for the later flourishing of the gospel in Ireland and in Europe in general. The monks, because of their prayerful presence in society, laid the, the true spiritual foundation of, of faith and of the church. And later, when those monks died, um, people would still go up that mountain to pray there at that chapel. That's why it was called the Pilgrim's Path. And it took them, you know, two hours to climb up that mountain. And then once you're there, I, I posted a panoramic view on, on my uh, Facebook page. You see that everything else 
diminishes in importance. Like the little village where we got stuck in traffic and where there are lots of tourists. It's just a tiny dot on the horizon. It doesn't matter. All the noise, all the busyness, it's all gone. And the only thing you hear is the wind. And on the other side of the mountain, you hear the sea. And it really helps you to realize that the things that were usually uh, immersed in, they don't really matter. If you, you, just, you just need to climb up a mountain to see how little of importance it is. So why worry about it? And what you find there is this almost sacred atmosphere in nature, um, this rest, this peace. And it really, um, it, helps, it helps you pray. It helps you kind of rediscover what is truly important. At least that's, that was my experience. It's just the, the beauty makes you speechless. And sometimes you have to s stop talking so that God can speak to you. So, and, and for me, that was an important experience and also an encouragement that in these times of, of, uh, of change, cultural change, um, even climate change, you know, that makes us very worried. It's crazy. The, the huge climate variations that we see and everything points to the fact that we are causing that and this is just the beginning um, who knows what, what, how this will affect the world in which we live even our you know, western civilized what we call civilized countries uh, and also the poorer people in the world who knows what, what awaits us and it can make you, make you anxious it can make people angry uh, they either deny it or they start I don't know It's just everything that threatens us can, can lure us into this state of uh, unrest and anxiety and sometimes anger and vision. Whereas those monks, I think, have the secret to what you should do in any situation in life. Step away and first seek God. Seek His presence. The rest is not important. And he will do what he wants to do. Uh, but he needs your heart. He needs your presence. Because he wants to involve us in his work. But it's not necessarily by working. <laughs> it's not necessarily by me uh, trying to work 24 hours a day to, uh, to build up the parish and to make plans and stuff. Maybe he just wants me to pray more. And, and that kind of... Uh, is in line with, with this discovery that I made over the past few months that now that I work less and I take more time to pray and I, I entrust more to God um, it makes I think it makes me a better priest and it helps me to be more open to what he wants to do in this world and I don't own that I cannot foresee that and by making room for God I give him the ability to surprise me. And in a way, he has already done that. Uh, in the sense that I've, wor I've worked less, but I'm more efficient than ever before, and I'm producing even more than ever before. And if I continue to, to work in a way that I've done for the past 15 years, I wouldn't have gotten to this stage. And so that, that encourages me to 
to let go even more and to trust. The same with the situation of my father, who is ill uh, and uh, now has lost his leg and is in a, uh, a care center. There is, there is so much uncertainty, and we don't know what's, what's going to be the next phase. And this may be the final phase of his life, or he may still live for another 10 years. Who, who, who can tell? The thing is, you can't do much about the situation. Uh, you can't just uh, fix him or you know, take him out of the delirium, even though gradually it is improving. But uh, what you can do is try to accept the situation as it is and seek uh, what, is, what, what is needed in this situation. Uh, what can you do? What, what is his own experience? Um, there was this fascinating article a couple of days ago that I read while I was still in Ireland about these uh, very pro-euthanasia uh, people. Um, I think they were part of a, one of those political parties that is always advocating, you know, the right to choose your own ending, etc. It's a very pro-euthanasia, pro-abortion. And this was a married couple, and they both had stipulated in a um, kind of a testament or a... Um, I'm not sure how you call that, but they write down their will if they're no longer able to decide themselves. And they had said both on, on paper, if we ever lose our minds if we ever uh, suffer from dementia and they put us in a care home kill us you know you've got license to euthanize us because we never want to be in that situation and they signed it and they gave it to uh, that's the Netherlands there are actually teams that will that will do that um, it's, it's horrific here um, but the thing is the woman starts to lose her um, intellectual capabilities first the man is still you know has all his, his wits but he sees that his, his wife is declining she ends up in a home but then, and, and then they ask her do you still want to be euthanized and she says no of course not I love it here people are friendly and she's laughing all the time and she's, she has no memory she's not making much sense but she's happy and then that, that completely turns upside down all their previous plans. Like, well, if we are ever in this situation, this is what we want. We don't want to live. This is not a human. Uh, this is no life of value anymore. And then they both have to acknowledge, well, but you never know in advance. And you have to take the situation as it is. And maybe it will be completely different from your doom and gloom scenarios. And so she's now living in that care center without a care in the world, in a way. I'm very happy, much, probably much happier than she was when she still could, could, you know, was, wasn't suffering of dementia. And that's kind of what I think of, of our, all of our future. We don't own the future. The future is God's future. We own the present. And what matters is to take the situation as it is and ask yourself, what is there room for love in my life? Is there room for God? Is there room for my neighbor? What can I do today? And if it's not much, then it's not much. That doesn't matter. <laughs> because we're not in charge of the future. We're not in charge of the church. We're not in charge of our culture. But what we can do is contribute. Give the best of us to the people with whom we live. 
and then literally let God do the rest. And if he, will, if he wants to take a couple of centuries before rekindling the faith in, in our countries, then so be it. Don't worry about it. And instead of moaning the lack of, of faithful in the, in the pews and blaming this bishop or that bishop for not being orthodox enough or not being progressive enough, let's stop that. It's silly. It's, that is the division that Jesus prayed for that we would not have. Uh, he wants us to be one around him in prayer with open hearts and, and most of all with faith in him that's the only thing that matters so that, that was kind of the lesson that I learned uh, if you want to hear more of my Irish adventures I may have good news for uh, those of you that support me on Patreon because I'm working on a documentary I filmed everything with my Asus uh, my new phone, uh, the Zenfone 6 and the results are pretty good I'm very happy, I've been writing a, a bit of a story I'm going to um, work on the edit and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I want to make that documentary available to my patrons. Um, but I don't want to kind of say, well, it's just for the patrons that uh, donate this or that. Because I cannot, you know, some people can give much and some people can give very little. Everyone can give something, I think, if, if only one buck a month or, or 50 cents, I don't know. But I want to... I wanna, uh, thank those patrons by doing these extra things for them so if you want to uh, join that that community of patrons and really again it doesn't matter uh, if you have a, lots of means to support or just a little bit but uh, check out patreon.com slash father roderick i'll soon update those pages um, to reflect more what what i'm going to do the next couple of weeks but i want to i want to do this more often and, uh, and and show you visually uh, the stories that I told you now uh, orally because there is a, a special power I think in in seeing the places that I describe so uh, stay tuned for that and of course there will also be my weekly show over at uh, tridio.com I'll talk to you soon take care and God bless <laughs>